I think the candle last week we'll call the candle of hope. He spoke about doubt, but the beauty of doubt in the walk of the Christian as we approach this amazing gift we're going to get in a couple of weeks or so is that in the midst of doubt we have hope. Hope is the life that we begin with. I'm going to talk more about Advent in a minute, so I won't re-preach my sermon here. Candle of hope. But if we're walking towards darkness, or walking towards the light in darkness, and we face this reality of doubt, the next word, or the next candle, is the candle of... I'm hearing it. Faith. If we're going to move forward into darkness, the next step that's the unknown one, it's faith. I want to think about that this morning. Um, Can I use this one? And I I confess I'm going to feel a little bit more like a Bible school teacher or seminary teacher as uh, as we approach this. (laughs) Years and years of ministry getting old. And I just had my most scariest of moments. It would have been a good sermon out of Ephesians, but um, they liked it in Gravelberg. We're picking up a theme that's entitled, Here He Comes Ready or Not. But the big question that we face this morning is how. So he's coming, but how? We're in this second Sunday of Advent, and I'm personally glad that we have chosen to take this sacred journey, joining churches, like I said, around our globe in anticipation of the coming of Jesus, our Messiah. And my reason is because this season called Advent, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, meaning it is not to be confused with Christmas. Sometimes we think the words are synonymous. They're not. Advent is a journey. Christmas is a celebration. And so we're taking this journey towards Christmas. The 25th of December, the day followers of Jesus have chosen to celebrate the birth of Christ. But Advent, at least humanly speaking, is a far weightier journey. Celebrations are easy. The journey's tough or challenging because it's the story of moving from darkness towards the light. It's the full-blown acknowledgement that as humans, we were lost and without hope. That's the trek of Advent. You see, prior to Jesus' first coming, Mankind's best hope was that annual animal sacrifice uh, for one's sin. And and as, as Pastor Doug read that passage out of Hebrews, it didn't even do us any good or didn't do them any good. And then after they had come and done the annual sacrifice, that was joined with this fumbling attempt to keep the law with an attempt to do a better job than they did last year. But in the end... One's best testimony was this, we couldn't, it was impossible. 
It's kind of like keeping your New Year's resolutions, good intentions after the great sacrifice, but after we walked away from the event and the memory and all the emotion, we just entered back into the routines of life and stumbled along, or they did. No, the best the law could do was to set a standard and then act as a critic, reminding us of the inability to keep the law perfectly so as to maintain a holy relationship with God. Result, an annual fail. The F showed up on our report card of life year after year after year, and their hope was locked up in a, in a kind of futuristic promise that someone was coming sometime, but they weren't sure when. And though that promise was true, there was going to come a Messiah, there was going to come a Savior, one who would become the ultimate Savior of God's people, move us from an F to an A+, but it was always somewhere out in the darkness. And what a darkness it was. And very few even had it figured out when the Messiah did finally arrive on our globe. And so my friends, Advent is us daring to step back and for one short season to be reminded that there wasn't always this Savior as we know him now. That there was a period where God's people did not share in this rich salvation that we perhaps take for granted. But here's the kicker. It is out of this stepping back into a realization that the world was locked in a spiritual darkness that in turn makes the light so bright. Face the darkness and look at the light. So Advent is the building crescendo towards the birth of hope and the possibility to love like never before. An absolute confidence that through our Savior, Jesus Christ, we have this place in a glorious eternity. And we share in the same inheritance as was already set up for his one and only Son. We're a privileged people. And so we stand with confidence today, as in the words of St. John, who wrote, I'm writing these things so that you may know. See, that wasn't a privilege prior to Jesus' coming. There wasn't the certainty of this is what we know. There was just the fumbling, waiting, hoping. And now the second Sunday of Advent takes us a step closer to this living hope, this knowing. And that is where we kick in this morning. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 38. Let me share it with you. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now Mary was greatly troubled at his words, wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God, and you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, and he will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. 
How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Why, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word, be to, may your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Amazing story. If we're going to give a title to this, this, to this passage, we just simply call it the virgin birth. And this is the great answer to the question, how is all that we have hoped, anticipated, and believed in going to take place? Now, last week, Chris shared with us the challenges that come with doubt. And, of course, that, that only makes sense. You and I understand this, this kind of thing around doubt because when we step into darkness, the unknowns of our life... Doubt is the most natural of all reactions. I'm sure there's, there's probably very few of anyone, if anyone here this morning, that when asked to go into a complete unknown is going to jump in both feet. There, there's, there's doubt. It happens. And Chris helped us to understand that last week. There's that, I'm not sure I can do this statement. There's, or this doesn't feel safe, or what will people think? Or, wow, there's a list of reasons that we resist moving where we do not know. or going where we do not know. It is that out-of-control feeling we get when we can't see the next step. That's the first Sunday of Advent. The story of Zachariah the priest. Now, now here we are at week two. The darkness hasn't vanished. You've got to get that. No, we're simply called to look at our impossible calling in a different way. We move from doubt to faith. Because if we are being challenged to face our doubts, we are in fact being called into faith. Meaning a challenge to our present belief system. That particular way we have come to define what and how we believe, believe life is to be defined. You see, we like what we believe already. Whether it's helpful or damaging or dysfunctional, doesn't matter. As long as we can describe it, control it, and explain it. So the challenge is when we face a story like Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 38. For there is no precedence for describing it or explaining it, and, and, and it fits way outside of science's ability to control it, doesn't fit inside a test tube to be examined. It only happened once. No, it's not a scientific approach. It can't be replicated. And as a result, there are a number of people who call themselves Christians and yet cannot bring themselves to believe in the virgin birth. For them, it's just simply an unexplainable dark hole. And in so doing, they fail to see the absolute importance the importance of this sacred doctrine of the virgin birth brings to our full understanding of God's salvation to this world locked in darkness. And so more and more churches are abandoning the teaching of this historic doctrine to provide an intellectually, politically, and socially acceptable response to what I believe is the foundation of the gospel. In fact, I stand here before you declaring that this truth 
around the virgin birth must be at the core of Christian belief. So what is the virgin birth? In his book, The Meaning of the Virgin Birth, Dr. Richard Creaser said this, the virgin birth does not mean that Jesus was born in a manger different than any other child. In a manner, I'm sorry, different from any other child. He was born in the same way as you and I. Came out of his mother's womb, went down the birth canal, had his first cry, slap on the back, whatever they did in order to establish that this one was born in the usual manner. The virgin birth does not try to make Jesus anything other than that as far as his birth is concerned. Nor does it suggest that this was merely a miraculous conception, as in the case of Sarah or Elizabeth, who were past age. No, this wasn't just sort of something out of the ordinary. Mary was a young woman, perhaps in her late teens, and quite capable of getting pregnant. This was part of her normal routines at her stage in life. I mean, the, the possibility of getting pregnant. It does not mean immaculate conception. For that dogma asserts that Mary was also conceived and born without original sin, a claim for which there is not a scintilla of biblical evidence. Mary, who did not have any sexual relations with Jesus' earthly stepfather, Joseph, or anyone else, conceived our Lord in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit, meaning Mary gave birth to Jesus without a human father. So why is the virgin birth critical? A few reasons. Number one, the deity of Christ hangs on it. If we do not believe in the virgin birth, we deny the very divinity of Christ, relegating him to simply a great human being, but not the Son of God incarnate causing his great name, Emmanuel, which means God with us, to become obsolete throughout that carol. The second thing that's critical around the understanding that this was a virgin birth is that Jesus himself claimed to be divine. John 10.30, I and my Father are one. Or John 8.58, Jesus said to them, speaking to the crowd, the group of people around him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, at first I thought, well, he's just, he's just saying that because he wants us to understand that even before Abraham was, he was. But that's not what it says. It does not read that um, before Abraham was, I was. It doesn't. It says before Abraham was, I am. When else was that name declared uh, to be the name of God? Well, you go back into Exodus uh, chapter 3, when Moses asked God his name so that he could tell it to Israel, and the answer was, I am. No, Jesus is making a strong statement here. I am is not grammatically correct if we want to take the first theory. I am is sort of that eternal extension of both ends. I just simply am that's Jesus' declaration about himself. The, the third thing that we need to understand, perhaps, around why the virgin birth is critical is that the writers of Scripture claim Christ is God. When we come to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, it goes like this. Simon Peter, giving the introduction to this second letter he sends out, he says, Simon Peter, a, ser 
excuse me, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. This isn't two people, God and then the Savior Jesus Christ. This is just the continuation, the extension of who he was. He is God and he's the Savior Jesus Christ. The scriptures make it so clear or, or if we go to one that's perhaps a, a, a little, I think in my mind, I really like it, a little clearer, is John chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then when you scroll down to verse 14, John just lays it out. Now, who's the Word, and what's this connection with God and everything? He says, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. There's no question, in the beginning. So when everything got started as far as creation was concerned, God was there. Back then, in the beginning, sometime way back there, he says, the Father and I were together. The Word was with God, the Word was God, and then in time, he became flesh. And he made his dwelling among us. He's the Jesus that showed up in a manger. Hebrews 1.8 says, but to the Son, he says, this is God talking, uh, written out by the writer of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking about what God is saying, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God. No quarrel between the, in the Trinity. There was no question whatsoever. God says through his Son, God is forever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Here's our point. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, he had a human father. If Jesus was not born of a virgin and had a human father, he was human. And if Jesus was not born of a virgin and had a human father and was merely human, then he was not and is not God. If Jesus was not born of a virgin and had a human father and was merely human and is not God, then both Jesus and the writers of scriptures are scoundrels. They were barefaced liars. I think C.S. Lewis paints this one out really well for us, rather plainly, I think, in his classic uh, Mere Christianity. Here's, here's this little paragraph that he writes out about this. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. So he's, 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 he's pulling a line out of what he hears in popular conversations about all this. And then he goes on and says this. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can't shut him up for a fool. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He, was not, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Let me slip back just a little bit into this here because the, the, the idea of the doctrine of, of the virgin birth really has farther reaching implications than just, just simply the things that I've shared because it really forces us to examine and to consider important reality around the reliability of Scripture itself because that's our source of information. 
You see, if one passage of Scripture can be proven false, particularly in something as critical as this teaching, then the accuracy and trustworthiness of the Bible begins to fall apart on us. Millard Erickson states this well when he wrote, If we do not hold to the virgin birth despite the fact that the Bible asserts it, then we have compromised the authority of the Bible, and there is, in principle, no reason why we should hold to its other, its other teachings. Thus, rejecting the virgin birth has implications beyond, or far beyond, the doctrine itself. Now, the Old Testament prophecies speak both of the virgin birth and the deity of the Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me take you right back to the beginning of the book. Perhaps you've read this passage over and over again and didn't pick up on its, the, the, its implications, the seriousness of this, of this implication. It's actually Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which says, this is after they've eaten the apple, all right? It's all taken place. God says, And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. It's God directing his comments to the serpent, the devil. You see, back in the Garden of Eden, God promised that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. But here's what we need to understand. Throughout the Old Testament, posterity is kept track of through the man or the couple. But in Genesis 3.15, the promise stands alone because it emphasizes that the Messiah would be the offspring of the woman alone. At least apart from man. First reference to the virgin birth of the Messiah Right at the beginning, right at the fall, God had a plan and he saw it in his futuristic eyes and he said there's going to be something special happen through the woman's offspring. Isaiah 7.14 is a little more obvious regarding the virgin birth. It just simply says, therefore, the, I shouldn't say simply said, excuse me, it doesn't simply say, it really profoundly says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So it speaks both of his virgin birth and really his deity. Or Isaiah chapter 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Do you know the next one? Mighty God, mighty God, everlasting Father. Again, no conflict among the Trinity. Here's the Father speaking to the Son, saying, and he's also going to be the everlasting Father. They're a union. They're joined together. There's this profound purpose in, their, in, in the mission that is, is unfolding in front of them. Prince of Peace. See, therefore, our conclusion is the divine sonship of Jesus Christ depends upon his virgin birth. If Jesus is the mighty God, if he's the everlasting father, and if he's to become the prince of peace. For if there's no virgin birth, then the character of the word of God is in question. For the word of God plainly teaches that Jesus was born a virgin and is God robed in flesh. I like that line. 
But perhaps for those of us who are sitting here in the pew this morning and for our desire to take the gospel beyond our pews, here's, here's perhaps the most significant of all reasons why we have to, give, uh, we have to accept this idea of the, of the virgin birth, and that is around our salvation or around the atonement for sin. You see, the depravity of man, when, when man gave in to his own nature and he sinned, ruining an, an open relationship with God, that took him into slavery. As a matter of fact, the word atonement is really a wonderful word. When that word was spoken in the day that this was written, I'll tell you, it put a sparkle in the eye of every slave that that word was directed towards. Because a slave had absolutely no hope whatsoever until somebody came along with enough money to hand over to the slave's master and said, I'll pay the price and I'll set him free. The word atonement is, a, is such a beautiful, shining word because when we go to its core, we begin to realize that we are not that much different than the guy in, sla- in chains back in the, in the early of part of the... Of, uh, of the time period that this was written. This is freedom. But it needs something. Because we're told in Romans 3, 23, any of you memorized it, for all have sinned and come short, fall out of, don't embrace the glory of God. There's a division. It's a huge division. And here's the truth. God, in light of his divine righteousness and holiness, cannot simply overlook our sin. One, makes us incompatible with a holy God, going in two different directions. But secondly, there is a legal requirement for sin to be punished. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. When you've busted the law, you've done something wrong, then there's a legal requirement to do something. In our homes, we just hopefully use it through confession and seeking of forgiveness. But when we step into the higher realms of society and in the universe, there's something far greater demanded of the lawbreaker. Once found guilty, he has to pay the penalty. You know, one... It makes us incompatible with the holy God. And secondly, the legal requirement for our sin is to be punished. Because our human sin nature, our willful disobedience, and our inability to meet God's righteous demands, if God were to save the sinner, he had to make provision for someone to step up to the plate and take the place of the guilty person. Someone had to die. And somebody had to die in our place in order for the sinner, you and me, to be made right with God. I can't. No matter how much I would love to, no matter how zealously I wanted to pick up the cause, I could not step up before God and say, I'll take it for them all, because I'm part of the all. I'm the guilty party. I've done it. All sinners, all people are disqualified. But God... But, but given God's righteousness and our sinfulness, we desperately need a perfect atoning sacrifice. And only God could meet that requirement by becoming a man and yet holding on to his divinity and then in total perfect obedience, having never sinned, go to the cross as the demonstration of God's love for you and me. And it begins with a virgin birth. The Holy One of God 
enters our world in the form of a man through human birth. And then shouldering our sins without sinning himself takes on our death penalty, resulting in the most amazing of all, of all unexplainable gifts. He became the means of salvation for everyone, offering complete forgiveness for all who truly repent and turn to God. It's a wonderful package, friends. That's, that's what helps to make the journey around the Advent candle meaningful. Because we take and we ponder the reality of what really took place first on December the 25th. And this year sometime, I think, in April, the story get, comes to a final kind of conclusion. Well, then there's Pentecost. No, it's a journey, friends. There's a reality. It's, it's not just something that happens. But rather, it was pre-designed, planned by God of all eternity to, to deal completely with the issues that we as fallen people are facing in our sinfulness. You see, if there's no virgin birth, there would be no sinless Christ. If there's no sinless Christ, then there's no atonement, there's no forgiveness. And if no forgiveness, there's no hope of heaven. And when there's no hope of heaven, we all die and go to hell. Sounds simplistic? Not at all. It's very complicated, actually. But it's our reality. Ignore the story. There's the outcome. Thank God. <coughs> Excuse me. Thank God for the virgin birth. If you take away the virgin birth, the whole house of Christianity collapses like a house of cards. So does it matter? Absolutely. It's because of the virgin birth that we have a suitable and sufficient Savior. But let me draw a conclusion to all this. It kind of pulls you and me into the fray. You see, the world's a better place because there are those who didn't say in the face of their doubts, I don't have faith. The world's a better place because Moses didn't say, I don't do arcs and animals. The world's a better place because David didn't say, in the face of his darkness, I don't do giants. And the world's a better place because a German monk named Martin Luther did not say, I don't do doors. Where he walked up to the cathedral, he took his 99 theses in the face of all opposition, and he hammered it on there, and it gave to us the foundation of what has become the Protestant Reformation the risk of his own life. The world's a better place because an Oxford don named John Wesley didn't say, I don't do preaching in fields. Totally contrary to the culture that he grew up in. He stepped out of the tidiness of his church and he walked into the field where the masses were. And as a result of that kind of faith, along with George Whitfield and some others, he began to preach a gospel that brought into the Western world one of its greatest revivals. But he had to step into his darkness. Every one of these people faced an unknown darkness. And the world's a better place because Mary didn't say, I don't do virgin births. And by faith said, I will step into it. And the world will be a better place only if you and I on this second Sunday of Advent don't say, I don't do faith. I live in my doubt and I question my darkness. 
But in turn, we say, I do have a faith that leads me through the darkness of my doubts or fears which leaves me completely available to what only God can accomplish through me. So stay in the journey because there is a light that shines brighter than any other light. I don't know what your darkness is. I don't know what the issue of doubt is that might be surrounding you in this moment. I'm just simply saying that there's this amazing journey that takes us from doubt through faith and some other things and brings us into the light of the world, friends. And it's a faith journey because that light wants to embrace you and me in all its power. Because in the end, we believe in Christmas, the most amazing of all birthdays. There was someone who came and does still come at the end of our journey, always present. Let us pray. For Jesus, we thank you for this amazing gift that you have handed to us, really undeservingly. We, we all sit here in our pews, and I stand up here, not because I'm any better, that's for sure. When Jesus, we sit here and we realize the hopelessness if we were left alone. We know what it's like to bust New Year's resolutions year after year after year, even though we are well-intentioned. And yet here we come. This is not a journey of hopelessness. This is a journey that embraces our faith and is going to bring to us the light of the world. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, in Jesus' name.